0: I am calling us on that day to an evangelism commitment day. I want to ask you to establish a goal each week, a weekly goal of how many times you'll share the gospel and invite someone to be chaven in a week. I want to ask you also to give an hour a month to outreach visitation. We'll ask our deacons to start them in September. We're asking our members to join us in January for that. We're call, going to call that grow Visitation. I want you to renew or begin a prayer, laws, a prayer list of 15 people who worry you and concern you spiritually that you'll pray for every day. And then August the 10th, I want to ask you to participate in evangelism training on that Sunday afternoon, August the 10th. Someone in our congregation that has done that is Donnie Pickering, And I want to invite Donnie to uh, go ahead and come and share his Baltimore testimony. I got to be Donnie's partner uh, during that time, and we had a marvelous time together sharing the gospel on the streets of Baltimore. Would you give Donnie Pickering a Beach Haven welcome?
1: I feel like a cat in a dog pound with a weight tied to his tail. And I am shaky enough to thread a sewing machine while it's running. (laughs) And that is right now for sure. But I also felt that way when I committed to and went to Baltimore. And thankfully, uh, a pre-meeting, it was very obvious that a lot of us were that way. And that turned out to be a, a really wonderful thing because we came together and we shared, we supported each other, and by the end of a successful week, uh, we were bound together through Jesus to be a strong unit. I wanna quickly tell you about three people that kinda highlighted the week for me. Number one was a lady named Yolanda, who answered her door, stepped out quickly, and spoke with us, introduced her family. And Yolanda was a Christian. You could tell as she went through talking about her family and some of their issues that there was something there where she felt real good. And when I asked her if she knew how she she was getting to heaven, she explained it very clearly. And then she immediately raised arms and said, let's pray. And that was a wonderful thing for me, but it was a good thing for her too. The second person is Nelson. Young man sitting at a bus stop, sitting on a wall and Dr. Mills and I went up to him and was talking to him, and he seemed a little cautious with a look on his face, but when Dr. Mills handed him a tract and said this was written by Billy Graham, everything changed. It was the perfect example of God having somebody ready and having the right circumstances come together. And he prayed to receive Christ, had tears of joy, people walking all around, And the bus didn't make it there. That was a good thing. Third person is a lady named Polly, and I'd like for every one of you to remember Polly. Polly fits the description, almost persuaded. She was in her 70s. She literally followed me and Tom McCormick down the street, and we talked with her over an hour. And Polly was convinced she was going to heaven because she was a good person. And she was a good person. But she wasn't prepared for Jesus. And each time we tried to broach that subject and uh, evangelize with her, she threw up the stop sign. You're preaching to me. I don't like that. But the last thing we said to Polly was, please go back to your place, read the tract that we left, and then turn to Romans 10, 9 and read those verses. And she raised her hands and said, I won't promise you anything. I won't promise you anything. As I turned to leave, I was praying for Polly, but that was kind of a downturn in events of the week, when you had somebody like that, that you knew needed Jesus. And they were close, and I know God continued to deal with her. About two weeks before we left, I was reading my Bible and came upon some verses that ended up being my goal for the week, and it's the parable told by Jesus in Luke 15, 8 through 10. A lady had ten silver coins. One of them came up missing. She searched throughout her home and finally found the coin. And it was a joyous time and she called upon her neighbors to share that joy. And then he goes on to say every time sin is forgiven on earth, that someone seeks to be forgiven, that there's joy in heaven. And that was my goal, to have joy in in heaven. And I hope as a church that we will continue that, that we will help create joy in heaven. Yeah. Uh, Athens needs it, our nation needs it, and Baltimore certainly needed. it. Thank you. Thank
0: you <laughs> Donnie also participated in evangelism to Arnie and to um, Demetrius. And some others that came to the Lord uh, there. He didn't have time to share all of that, but it was good to be his partner on uh, Friday. Uh, what, um, what is evangelism? Well, let me tell you what it's not. Evangelism is not a debate, it's not an argument, it's really not an intrusion. If you practice the golden rule in your kind, that's generally the response you'll get back from people. Uh, it's not necessarily an intellectual exercise, you don't have to know everything to be effective in uh, evangelism. It's not something that's just for the gifted or the extroverted. In fact, the most effective witnesses I know are actually, uh, term themselves introverts. And I've been very encouraged by that. Southern Memphis' most brilliant witness since World War II was Dr. Roy Fish. Uh, My evangelism professor and colleague, when I was there, Dr. Fish was uh, introverted. Shy, but always effective. Evangelism is simply this. It is verbally sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's power and inviting people to trust Christ as Savior and to follow Him as Lord. And so if you can be kind, if you can share the good news of Christ and invite people to come to Jesus, you can be effective in this thing the New Testament calls evangelism. Now one of the things that you're going to have to do and that I need to do constantly is to make sure my heart is where it needs to be When it comes to evangelism. And the Apostle Paul demonstrates that with a burden for those who were lost. Beginning in Romans chapter 9 and verse 1, he said, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who were Israelites. Now he picks up again on that theme in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, he says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul had a burden for souls, and the greatest witnesses we know in all the scripture had a burden as well. I will tell you, you can be effective if you'll learn to acquire and maintain a burden for those without Jesus Christ. If you can get your heart in the right place with love and tenderness and compassion, you can be effective in evangelism. Well, what will a burden do for me? Well, one, it will govern your witness. A burden will govern your witness. Now, Paul said in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, that he had great burden and continual grief that Israel would be saved in chapter 10 verse 1 he said that it was his continual prayer well let me ask you does that come as a surprise to anyone is anyone surprised at all that the apostle Paul had a flame in his heart for people to turn to the Lord well if you know anything about his biography in the book of Acts oh no all of that makes sense we know what Paul had in his heart because of what he demonstrated in his life. In fact, uh, the way Paul could tell that he had 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 a good Sunday in church was to count his bandages on Monday. And, And he didn't stop. They stoned him once in Lystra. And it appeared that he was dead and he got back up and went right into the city and kept preaching the gospel. And so when Paul says, I have this continual grief and this burden in my heart, there's not a one of us that's surprised by that. Because what was in his heart came out in his life. In other words, whatever was in the bucket started in the well first. And that's how the Apostle Paul was. And beloved, that's exactly how the rest of us are as well. Do you know what you and I do when it comes to sharing the gospel? You and I do precisely what is on our heart. Many Christians, if not most of them, are terrified of sharing the gospel of Christ. And so that works itself out into behavior and into thinking. Many of us justify a lack of evangelism saying, well, I'm not in the ministry or I'm not an evangelist or I'm not gifted in that area, which is almost totally irrelevant, by the way. We'll talk about that sometime later. But uh, as far as you and I are concerned when it comes to evangelism. In other words, what happens is we have a sense and feeling in our heart and we justify it with our minds, which is how many moral psychologists argue we actually develop our moral development and reasoning. Now, I uh, want to uh, share with you, Jonathan Haidt has written a book entitled The Righteous Mind, and he has argued really intensely, and I think persuasively, that morals and decisions and actions and behavior don't begin with the mind, they begin with the heart. Well, Paul could have told us that in Romans chapter 2, is what he could have done. The condition of our heart will govern our lives, and that's why I'm urging and encouraging you. If you can get your heart wrapped around this, you will end up doing evangelism if you can get a heart for it and Jonathan Haidt compares it to an elephant and a rider. so often we think the mind and reasoning happens to be the elephant the dominant factor in our behavior he actually says that the elephant happens to be our heart our soul our intuitions what is in our spirit And that what happens is that we have an emotional reaction to something, and we spend the rest of our lives mentally trying to justify it, and I have seen that over and over again. Now, as Christians, our heart and soul is to factor into these things, but Scripture is to be number one when it comes to this. And as we grow in the Lord, we are to set aside our hearts and souls as the elephant And we're to let the scripture be the elephant in our lives. But the truth is, so many of us are driven by what we feel and then we justify it with our minds. Husbands and wives do that with each other. Uh, We do that in work. We do that in so many different places. Ladies and gentlemen, I do want to say to you though, if you can get your heart around the need of lost people to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find a way to do evangelism. That's what led one preacher to pray. Dear God, may the fire in our heart melt the lead in our feet. A burdened heart will govern your witness. If you can get your heart around it, you can become effective. But that's not all. Not only does a burdened heart govern our witness, but it also improves your witness. Now, Paul knew the benefits of being an effective, uh, of having a burdened heart. One benefit happens to be a burden imitates the best witnesses. David said in Psalms 119.53, horror has taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake your law. David also said in Psalms one twenty six five and 6, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Then Jeremiah said, All that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And let them make haste, and let them take up wailing for us, that our eyes may run down with tears, and our eyelids gush out with water. The Apostle Paul said, For three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Then Jesus Jesus. Um, when he came to Jerusalem, Luke records, when he came near Jerusalem, he beheld the city and he wept over it. And so whenever you have a burden on your heart, you imitate the best Christian witnesses that have ever been. But that's not all. A burden not only imitates the best Christian witnesses, but a burden previews judgment. A burden previews judgment day. The truth is, is that when your heart is racked with a brokenness and a burden for people to be saved, it shows itself on your countenance. And tears and brokenness end up pointing to the judgment day that is coming. The final day where the rich and the poor, the great and the small will all appear before the judgment bar of Almighty God. That's what will take place. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible describes the future judgment as wailing and gnashing of teeth. And when that appears on your face with a burden and a brokenness, it communicates to a lost and dying world their urgent need to see and turn to Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a judgment, a preview of judgment on your face. And it helps to communicate the message. Then a burden builds our credibility. If we do not have a burden and brokenness over lost people... We, uh, folks can be forgiven for questioning how serious and sincere we are in our witness. If we continue to live day by day as if there is no future perishing that awaits those that are lost without Jesus Christ, they can be forgiven for wondering if we really are sincere about what we're saying. But, but... But if we have a brokenness and burden of heart, we will communicate that to them. L.R. Scarborough, in fact, said and warned about this, a compassionless Christianity drifts into ceremonialism and formalism. Spiritual dry rot is worse for the churches of Jesus Christ than the plagues were for Egypt. And so a broken heart over the future of lost people will build our credibility. Then it will intensify our prayers. It will intensify our prayers. Whenever you have a broken heart over something, it issues easily into prayer. And prayer is a number one or a top priority in sharing the gospel with lost people. It's tremendous preparation and we cannot do without it. In fact, we never go out and witness without proceeding it with prayer. Then a burden shapes our priorities. It will actually shape the priorities of our prayers. And so while it is wise and helpful to pray for people as they ail in their health, while it's wise to pray for people about their financial challenges, while it's wise to pray about decisions in God's will, and we'll do all of these, the most urgent prayer we can pray for anyone is for them to repent and believe the gospel. The greatest crisis in all the earth is not health, is not finances, is not decision-making as important as these are. The most urgent crisis in all the world is to live day after day and face a future without Jesus Christ. That is the most urgent priority. Manette Drumright who used to lead prayer for the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, used to say, Most Christians in their prayer life spend almost all of their time praying that God would keep Christians out of heaven by healing them than praying that God would keep lost people out of hell by saving them. And I think she was right. There needs to be an inversion of priorities because the greatest crisis and the priority crisis upon which we focus as the people of God is being lost without Jesus Christ. Then, a burden will sustain our labor. When you have a burden for lost people, you will endure nearly anything to get them to Jesus Christ and not give up. John R. Rice said, A stoning, a shipwreck in Paul's life, a Philippian jail at midnight, with his bleeding back and his shackled feet, could not quench Paul's tears for the lost nor distract his compassionate heart until they were saved. We'll put up with just about anything when we have a burden to bring people to Jesus Christ. So what I want to say to you is this, there are almost well there are no disadvantages to have a burden for the lost. There are a multitude of disadvantages by failing to have one. And so acquiring, nurturing and maintaining a burden for those who do not know Jesus Christ is a top priority. But then the third thing a burden will do for us is a burdened heart will clarify your witness. A burdened heart will clarify your witness. And Paul picks up on this in chapter 10. A burdened heart will clarify, in the first place, the hazard of self-righteousness. 900 out of 1,000 people I share the gospel with have hope and faith in their virtue and works to make them right with God. Now, if you know the gospel of Christ, that breaks your heart. Because we have no virtue to offer God. Our righteousness is as what? Isaiah said. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And Paul is aware of this. So in chapter 10 verses 2 through 6, he talks about the hazard and the threat of self-righteousness. He said, I bear the witness that they have a zeal for God, yet not according to knowledge. It's possible to be zealous for God and not be saved and on your way to heaven. He says here, because... You may be doing it in such a way that it does not consist of the truth, is what he said. So zeal is not necessarily a mark of a right relationship with God through Christ. That broke his heart. It's very difficult, by the way. It can be a challenge to break through a false sense of security with a zealous person who does not know the Lord. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, which describes 90% of the United States, I believe, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now, isn't it interesting he would put it that way? Submitting to the righteousness of God. An attempt to earn favor with God by personal virtue and personal works is a rebellion against God. To come in humility and repent and trust only the gospel of Christ requires submission to God's ways. And I I must tell you, if anyone is going to be made right with God, you or me, we've got to come to God on God's terms, not our own. Salvation belongs to God. Heaven and the kingdom belong to Him. And we gain entrance into His kingdom, His home, His heaven, on His terms and His terms alone. And so the arrogance and the False sense of security has got to be banished from our souls. Then he said in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And if we understood that, we'd shout amen. Do you know why? Because this law God has established is far beyond me. I'm not able to fulfill all the law. And God says when Christ came, that was the end of our attempts to fulfill the law. Because Christ fulfilled it. And God transfers that righteousness to everyone who trusts Christ in Christ alone. Glory to His name. He is the plank on which I hope to float to glory. It is His righteousness He gives for us to be clothed, to stand pure before God, to be dressed appropriately, to stand before the King. Jesus Christ does that. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, verse 5, the man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down uh, from above, or who will descend to the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now Paul gets into the second item here that is clarified by a burden, and that is the nearness of salvation. In other words, what he is saying is, is that you do not have to work yourself up to heaven into the presence of God by your virtue, ingenuity, righteousness, or performance. You don't have to do that. You don't have to reach down and bring Christ up either. Instead, look what it says in verse 8. The word that saves you is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you trust Christ and Christ alone, haven't eliminated any hope in your virtue and righteousness, you'll not be ashamed on that day when you stand before God. Amen. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me ask you this. Is there anything here in this text that the ordinary, average, non-Christian cannot Do. It doesn't require fulfillment of 600 Old Testament laws, which were there, there were that many and more. It doesn't require elevating yourself by virtue and self-performance to be made right with God. What does it say here? Salvation is as close as your mouth. Salvation is as simple and easy as speaking a word, a sincere word. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, which Roman soldiers had to confess Caesar is Lord annually to keep their position in lives. If you can put yourself on the line and declare Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's how close your salvation is. And how broken hearts are when we realize salvation is that immediate, it is in close proximity. It is closer than the skin. It is closer than the breath that we breathe. And yet people will not turn to Jesus. That's enough to break a heart. It clarifies the nearness of salvation. It clarifies the responsibility then also for evangelism. When you have a heart for lost people, you take it upon yourself to do something about it. Beloved, I know... The David Mills will not win the whole world. But if they die and they perish, I want them to perish with my arms around their knees and pleadings from my voice and tears from my eyes. I can't win them all, but I'm going to try and I'm going to give all my life to mobilize the army of God in His church to vanquish sin and vanquish unbelief and give themselves to Jesus Christ and I'll not rest until my dying breath. Why? Because of this text. Look what it says in verse number 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Well, that's a rhetorical question, expecting the answer what? Well, let's read it again. How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? They never will, will they? There's no way they can call on Him without believing. And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a herald? It says preacher here in this text. That's not someone behind a pulpit. That's any Christian who acts as a public announcer for the gospel of Christ. And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it's written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. All a lost person has to do to be saved is repent and believe the gospel. But God has made the delivery of the gospel a bit more complex. And that is, He has inserted you and me in the mix. If we are, if they are to hear the gospel of Christ, we must tell them they'll not hear without us. And that's why I want my life to be aflame for Jesus. I don't have the gift of evangelist. I've served in that role. That's not my gift. Evangelism scares the daylights out of me. I think that's one reason I can teach it. I've struggled with all the difficulties and all the problems of it. But I grew grew up without the gospel of Jesus Christ. I grew up in a home that never mentioned Jesus, that did not open a Bible and did not say a prayer. And yet Sunday school teachers and a pastor were compassionate and kind enough to share the good news of Jesus with me. And teenagers in my school would pick me up for church and bring me And I would hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ in the middle of an agricultural village in the Central Valley of California one day, April 5th, 1982, God reached down and saved me when I called on His name. And I do not want others to go the rest of their life without hearing the gospel of Christ. Sixteen years of my life was too long. And so it is our responsibility. And I, I want to say to you, when you get this around your heart, you take it as your own personal responsibility. Members of the Salvation Army wrote their general, General William Booth, saying that our work is not being effective. No one's being converted or coming to Christ. What shall we do? And he wrote a two-word response in a letter, and he said, try tears. He was wise and he was right. John Harper was a Baptist pastor in Scotland. Moody Memorial Church in Chicago called him to pastor that great church in 1912. He was a widower... He was traveling across the Atlantic with his daughter to uh, catch uh, a train to Chicago to take up the helm of that pastoring. While on board this ship in 1912, it hit an iceberg and it began to sink. He was sailing on the Titanic on its maiden voyage. And as it went down, witnesses say that John Harper, the the pastor, cried out to uh, passengers, to repent and believe the gospel. One man chastised him for sharing the gospel as the Titanic was going down. And Harper said, here, take my life this. Obviously, you need it more than I do. And gave it to him. He handed his daughter off to someone in the lifeboat and continued witnessing as the ship began to lurch into the water. The ship went down. And about four years later, in a Titanic survivors meeting in Canada, one man said of John Harper, he went into the water, it was icy, it was cold, and yet I heard him pleading with people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He came to me one time and said, now believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I rebuffed him. He came back a second time and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. In the icy waters of the Atlantic with the titanic tragedy John Harper had such a burden on his heart to bring men and women to Jesus Christ that even the fear and the threat of hypothermia could not silence him. That is what you do when you have a heart to bring lost people to Jesus Christ. Is anyone here grateful that someone told them about Jesus? Is anyone happy that they're going to miss hell and gain heaven? Is anyone here happy that they don't have to worry about what they cannot keep and don't have to worry about losing all that they could gain in Jesus Christ? Is anyone here happy with the beauties of His face? Is anyone here happy with the cleansing of sin? Is anyone here happy with the assurance of salvation? Then lift up your voice like a trumpet and let the world know from a burden of the heart. Jesus Christ is Lord and He saves whoever will call upon His name. It's time to do it. This county is needy. There's no one offering anything better. Have you noticed that? The drug dealers are offering death. The Flesh merchants are offering destruction. Uh, The truth is is that no one is offering anything that compares to the royalty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. They need Jesus and you can bring them to Him if you will get a burden on your heart. Jesus had this. In fact, He stopped dying long enough to pray for those that didn't know Him. There were soldiers gambling for his clothing and onlookers that were gawking and religious leaders who were sneering. An insurrectionist, a Jewish terrorist next to him was blaspheming him as if he had the moral authority to do so. And yet he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May I say to you, the sweet, tender heart of the Savior has that kind of affection for you. No matter what it is that's bothering you right now, that your behavior and your walk with God, your sin and your failure, the embarrassing episodes of your life, the Savior cried out for you, Father, forgive them." That is the tenderness of the Savior. And He loves you. He bled in your place. And He's urging and pleading with you now to forsake your life outside of Jesus Christ. And urging you to come to him. Where he will receive you. If you'll trust his cross and resurrection alone. He will receive you. Cleanse your sin. Something you could never ever lose the rest of your life for eternity. You'd belong to him forever. That's the sweet tender affection of the Savior. I think it's only right and decent to turn to him today. Father, we want to pray that friends would do that in these moments and say yes to the Savior. Would you do a neat work in our hearts and lives and I pray there'd be a flame in our heart that would melt lead in our feet. I pray that friends today would turn to you quickly and immediately and say yes to you. Heed the Spirit's call and obey the faith and embrace Jesus. Help friends to say yes, dear God. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And as we do, we're going to ask you to step out from where you are and make your way down this aisle. Some of our deacons, staff members will be here to receive you. Tell them your spiritual need and we'll help you with that. Why don't you come? Would you quickly stand? Let me finish my prayer and you can come. Father, please gather for yourself all that you want for Jesus from us as we give ourselves to him. In Jesus' name, amen.